Welcome back to How They Train. Today I'm joined by six-time Ironman World Champion, Dave Scott. Dave also finished runner-up at the Ironman World Championships three times, something that often gets forgotten about because of his six wins. Dave might be best known for being one of the people involved in the famous Iron War, where he and fellow legend Mark Allen ran side-by-side in an epic battle for most of the marathon at the end of the 1989 World Championships, which, if you haven't watched, do yourself a favour and go on YouTube right now. Dave has since gone on to become one of the great coaches with names like three-time Ironman World Champion Craig Alexander and four-time Ironman World Champion Chrissy Wellington on his resume. Dave, thanks for joining me, mate. What's uh, life look like in your world at the moment? (laughs) Well, there's no lockdowns, Jack, so I feel good about that and the sun's out today. Uh, Yeah, I think everyone feels a big reprieve that, you know, life is returning and I think on the uh, health and athletic realm, People are physically and psychologically kind of ramped up for a, a you know a good year twenty twenty two. So I'm still still involved in the sport in a lot of different ways and um, trying to <laughs> trying to taper back a little bit on some of the work stuff that I do because I'm kind of manic about work and total type A kind of guy. But all all is pretty well. Something I was going to ask is, uh, are you still coaching any pro triathletes at the moment or are you mostly involved in like the age group triathlon game? Uh, no pros right now, Jack. You know, I had, uh, and you, you mentioned Craig. I mean, I, I, I really advised Craig when he was here. He was in Boulder for, you know, a number of years on and off and uh, his family spent time out here. So he's a good mate. He's a great guy. And I'll see him in the Collins Cup because he's also one of the captains. So, you know, we sat down many, many times and kind of went through his program. And I said, you know, Craig, why are you doing this? Let's weed this out. You ought to change this. And went over his mobility stretching and strength program. So, you know, I was kind of a pseudo advisor on the side to him. Um, Chrissy Wellington and Julie Dibbins and Rachel Joyce. And there was a slew of other ones I coached kind of full time. Uh, Chrissy, we're quite quiet about our relationship, which was really her choice. And I said, I didn't really care. I mean, you know, I'll try to, <laughs> you're already good. I, I don't want to muck up the program with you. Let's see if we can make you better. So uh, I saw her in Kona win her first time. And then shortly after that, I, uh, she went through a few coaches and then we kind of aligned here in Boulder. So, uh, you know, that it was a great learning experience for me and working with the pros to answer your question, Jack, no, I'm not working with any pros. Uh, I have a, a coaching platform and we're launching a new one that we can customize uh, training programs, but it's really all amateur based, all, all different levels from what I call emerging athletes to uh, seasoned seasoned amateurs that are going to world championships. And like I said, yeah, you, you, you do, you did coach all, and now you've sort of clarified, you did advise Craig Alexander. He was a, a guest on this podcast and, and I don't really do research for, for this podcast because I just talk about subjects I know about because I've, you know, been a fan or watched the sports or, or whatever it is. But before this, I was a little curious about your coaching because like you sort of mentioned there with the Chrissy thing, how you, how you guys kept it a bit quiet. I've sort of thought throughout your whole coaching career that you've sort of kept it a little bit on the down low and and haven't made a, a big deal in the public domain about what pros you're working with or who you're helping and why ever that is that's that's sort of just how it's felt from the outside um so i i've sent crowy a message and i asked him like uh, could you tell me about you know what what yours and dave's relationship was and and that and he said jack all you need to do all you need to do is ask him if he worked with any stubby stubborn athletes or any anyone who just did crazy sh- sessions and wouldn't listen to their coach and he'll know you're talking about me 
<laughs> well, that's not entirely true. I, I, I think, you know, Craig and, and Chrissy put it, putting them in the same pod. They, you know, they were uh, amazing athletes. I saw Craig uh, win a living distance race uh, in California, <clears throat> knew of his name. And uh, even in that race, when he won that race, they said, man, this, this, this man's got some talent and he's got that hunger. And I think there's a lot of athletes that are genetically gifted, but they just don't have the killer instinct. And uh, Chrissy and Craig did. So, yeah, they they have a stubbornness about them. And I, and I uh, had some verbal battles, not with Craig as much, but more with Chrissy. Like, oh, man, I can't coach this woman anymore. She's, you know, she, she's too haywire. She's too stubborn. But we always came back, and and even the last week we we corresponded, so we remained very good friends since we parted. Um, I I think you you know per your comment, Jack, I I never really thought it was necessary to uh, put the superstars in the golden lights that I'm their great coach, and I and I just let it come out as it came out. So maybe to a fault, I didn't do that. I didn't market my business well that I was working with these athletes and. Um, you know, I don't regret uh, not doing that. I certainly regret a lot of things in business, but, you know, not sort of touting them that I, that I'm their mentor and I'm, I'm their guide. I always took coaching, even with the amateurs that I coach now that it's collaboration. And I think when a coach mandates, we're going to, you're going to do this in X, X number of hours per week. And this is your session on Monday. And these are the intervals and the, and the recovery, but there's no definition on why you're doing that. What's the purpose of doing that? What's the goal for it? Uh, and if you're doing what I call microcycles or periodization, if there's no definition on it and the athlete is kind of befuddled or there hasn't been this dialogue, I, I've always felt that that's a mistake. So I've kind of continued that over the years and, even with athletes that I work now, I, it's always, Oh, you, you got this race coming up or these are your a races. And then someone gets a niggling injury or they traveling or they got family things, or there's a lockdown or whatever. Uh, I, you know, I try to adapt to their schedule and really get the biggest, you know, return on their time. So that's kind of how I worked with, with Craig coming back to your comment. That was quite funny. Uh, and I'll just share a story. Craig went over to Kona. Uh, I've been kind of working with him for a couple of years. And I remember I called him. He went over there through three weeks early before the race. And he said, oh, I would just feel amazing, Dave. I'm ready to go. I've, I, I really rock. And uh, I just ran 20 miles uh, at six minute pace <laughs> the other day. I, I wanted to strangle him through the phone line. I said, what? <laughs> Why in the heck did you do that? And that wasn't part of my plan. It was just sort of maybe his a little bit of stubbornness. And I think, you know, every, every athlete going into a big event has a little bit of insecurity. And he said, Oh, I got to do my final test that particular year. And I think it was probably a result of that amazing workout day. <laughs> he didn't fare well in Kona, but um, we sort of weeded out the bad ones with him. Was that big session he did in Kona, was that before his loss in 2010 where Chris McCormick and the boys went hard on the bike and he uh, he sort of got involved in, in that tactical battle and, and ended up on the, the wrong side of it? Uh, no, it was um, – I, I, I'll say it's 2009. My memory's not great. I think it was, it was prior to that race. Right. So maybe yeah. the first one he went where he finished runner-up. Yeah, I think it, I think it was. And, uh, you know, Craig was an amazing – workout machine as Chrissy was as well. And I always had to kind of temper it a little bit. And I think every, every athlete that jumps into this sport quite often will think more is better. 
And if I do more, bigger volume, more kilometers, I'm going to be faster. And, and there's a point of no return. There's a really bad point of no return uh, with heart function as well. If you do it over time, I can have a testament to that. But uh, so I, you know, got, I would get their programs and look at them and not try to revamp everything. But one of the key tenets was let's not do a long run or a long ride or a long brick every week uh, throughout the entire year. That, that, that's a big mistake. And so they kind of followed that um, philosophy of mine and I explained why and, and they came into the races a bit fresher. And has your training philosophy changed over time? Is, is, the, is the philosophy you were sort of trying to instill in, in these fellow world champions the same philosophy you had in the late 80s when you were, you know, at the peak of your powers as an athlete? Uh, I would say yes and no. I mean, if there's not evolution with training pr- uh, principles and, and kind of melding the science and what the best athletes do and uh, who's performing consistently. If you're not looking at that as a coach or an athlete, you're pretty myopic that my way is the only way. And so that even when I, I raced in the eighties and then really quite started to change things around the nineties, it was partly just because of a time issue. And I didn't want to, you know, keep pounding that long stuff. And so I didn't do that in the nineties. I, as you alluded to in the, intro you uh, cited those three seconds I got one of them was against the great Aussie Greg Welch in 94 and I was second in that race my total volume was way 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 less but one of the things that I did through my whole career which I think is paramount and I said this to Craig right away when he came from uh, Olympic distance racing I said "I, I never want you to lose your top end and, and we're seeing this gravitation of, you know, the great ITU or Olympic distance racers that move up to 70.3 and then Ironman and, and they fare very well. And I didn't want him to lose his, his upper end capacity. And that's something that I worked with Chrissy on to make sure that as we got into the final races and even Kona, which was the, you know, the big one for both of them is that they had the highest power output. And I, and I kind of looked at their swim and their uh, bike that they didn't lose any lose any of that. And people say, well, the swim is kind of in, insignificant. And I didn't treat it that way at all. So uh, your question, Jack, I always had, had implemented high intensity interval training in my uh, individual program. And I thought that speed was something that I lacked. Uh, I knew that as a collegiate swimmer, I never really had that top end. And it, you know, it driving mad it really in Kona because I, there was, I think three years in a row, I was about 50, 23 on my time, 50 minutes, 23 seconds. And I always wanted to get that top group, but I just didn't have that first 400 meters where I could really get out. You know, I worked on it hard, but it never really happened. And, and I want to have the top speed on the bike and, and also the run because I, overall, my run speed really kind of paled in comparison, even in my time to the guys that were running faster 10Ks or half marathon. Uh, but off the bike, I was pretty economical. My, my run form was just dreadful. It was unsightly, but I always thought I looked like a gazelle out there. And, and something I find really interesting is that you were sort of, I mean, I don't know if this is actually true. I've never, I've never asked anyone. I just go off what I've heard and, and, and it's that you were sort of the pioneer of the modern day Ironman triathlete in that when you started going to the world championships, it wasn't even at Kona and, um, no one really trained for it like a professional and that, that you were sort of the first guy to go, okay, I'm going to train for this and, and really make this my thing. 
Um, is that is that true? Well, yes, because the the denoted world championships, there was only one. We didn't have all these other. We had different distances. I raced all different distances, and I, I raced in the Gold Coast on a um, closer to what Nice was. It was a four k swim and 130 k bike and 30 k run. That was back in '89. But I did Olympic distance races and sort of these off off distance races that aren't established as a sprint or Olympic or half or full. But the world championships, as they put the title on there, and I'm sh- sure you know the history, the first Ironman race was 78. Uh, I read about it in 78. I went over there in, in 1980 and won that first year. And I thought, well, you know, I'm such a neophyte. I'm, I'm really raw at this game. But I always came over there to race. And even in 80, it wasn't like, oh, I just want to finish this thing. I hope I survive. I never had that attitude. And when I hear that with current day athletes and even the last 20 years where they say, well, I hope I can get through the marathon. Okay. I I just want to squelch that sort of negativity and also, you know, look at the positive elements about their run. So they're not thinking about it as a survival skill. So when I raced, I went to Ironman and, and that was the, that was the granddaddy. That was the race that I wanted to race. And if I, fell apart at six hours, well, then <laughs> I maybe need to plan my strategy different. But I was always confident in that race that I was never going to die. And so even in the first one in 80, that didn't happen. And I thought, well, I'll just see if I can improve on this performance. And something that I also find really interesting inside of that is that that now we have these sort of like blueprints, how you want to do an Ironman, you want to do a, an Ironman 70.3, this is how you train for it. And, and this is this is how, how it's done. Whereas I, I doubt you had that. So did you come up with your own training philosophy back then? And and, and how did that work? And, and was anyone else actually doing it? Or was it truly just your own product? And, and then you've just sort of honed that over time. And, and, and I guess sort of, you know, created the, the blueprint for everyone to follow now. Well, uh, starting on your last comment, I don't know if I created the blueprint. I think there's a lot of uh, blueprints out there that are wrong for each athlete because you have to you have to look at their existing training profile, the amount of time that they have uh, in each week. You have to look at their strengths and their weaknesses, and then you know hopefully put that together in, in a program. So you have to look at progression, overload, and recovery. Those are the three tenets. When I started training, I, I never had a coach my whole career. I never had a mentor. I never had someone who was an, an exercise physiologist. That was my background. That's what I studied. But the application to the length of the Ironman race, there was nothing out there. I mean, the marathon back in the 70s and 80s was, wow, how, how do people run uh, 42K? That, that seems improbable. Uh, and then all of a sudden, we're doing it on the end of this rather long bike and, and, and long run. And so there wasn't a template to follow and, you know, trying to hone my own individual um, protocol for training really was an evolutionary process. Like, what did I do well this year? What do I need to work on? And the end result, hopefully I can get faster, but I didn't have any guidance in that. Uh, there were studies that were coming out where they started looking at different athletes, but uh, I was sort of the old guy, the first guy that sort of tried this. And I said, well, it, it seems like my formula is working, but I, I was never, I was never really content, Jack, like, oh, that was an amazing performance. Uh, you know, I won the race and, 
uh, I'd almost finish the next day and, and look at myself with a, a microscope and say, oh, I could have gone a lot better. And my, my, you know, swim wasn't as fast. I was soft on the bike here. My marathon should be way faster. And it finally started coming down in the, in below 250. I think it was back in 84. So I kept thinking, oh, I can run a lot faster than that. So I, I would always dissect what I was doing. Current day programs, I think, unfortunately, follow. If I can get more time, then I'm going to put more time in on the bike and the run particularly. And more volume is going to mean I'm going to go faster. And that's a mistake. And you sort of just mentioned then that the three tenors of your training program were progression, overload, and recovery. Could you take me through that a little bit more? Maybe hit each of them? Uh, I, I look at, and this is the way I coach now, uh, Jack, you have to have benchmarks. I call them marker sets. They're test sets. You have to have test sets that really determine how you're improving over the year. And they can be permutations of the first time you do it. I mean, a simple one is, is doing an FTP test on the bike. Well, I'm going to do an FTP test on the bike. And uh, initially where they're looking at blood lactates and how long can people hold that level. And, and we know the top cyclists and top tri- triathletes on an undulating course can hold right at their, their lactate threshold for about an hour and a half running, not quite that long swimming can supersede that. So I would look at different tests and I, and I do this with my training programs. I, I run these tests with these athletes. So we have a baseline measure of their fitness and, uh, and I've kind of lowered the levels so it makes it easier to, to test. So, for example, FTP, I started off with an hour test. And I said, well, you we could probably get a lot of the, the uh, emerging athletes and amateur athletes with a 45-minute bike ride. And I can do the same thing on the run. And I'm going to lower that down to 25 to 35 minutes on the swim. So you start with a, a baseline metric that you're looking at. And everything should be based on that particular test. You can put in other tests. So you can look at people's VO2, which is obviously a higher output. And the, the top end with it, I use what I call anaerobic endurance. And those are repeats from 25 seconds to around two minutes. Well, what, what, what do people have on their top end? And there's a great correlation. Anaerobic endurance, AE level, and they start bringing this up. This will help their Ironman races. And a lot of people don't say, well, that, that, that there's no parallel between a 12-hour race and doing some hard repeats of a minute. And that's, not, that's nonsense. There's great physiology behind that. It doesn't take a lot. But the improvement where the muscle recruitment and the output and the cardiovascular effect is, is gigantic. Uh, the muscle recruitment is a, is a huge thing that I kind of look at. It's called fast twitch 2A fibers, which are the intermediate fibers. How can we make those stronger so that they don't consume glycogen and they can assist the slower ones? So I do these tests and I get a baseline and that's kind of how I move through the year. As people become more fit, their metrics generally, hopefully improve. And so you're, you're always moving that scale up a little bit. So you have tangible data on athletes, maybe on that high end on the anaerobic end, you have them at lactate threshold. You have them just below that sub-threshold. You know, how economical are they? And then you can cor- start correlating that to races that they picked, whether it's sprint, Olympic, 70.3 or Ironman. So that's kind of a rough and crude way of describing what I do. But I think the marker sets 
You have to have this in there, not just, oh, this is a really good workout. Go do that workout because Jan Ferdano did it or Daniela Reef did it. And look how fast they are. That type of coaching is utterly nonsense. And I also hear this from other coaches without mentioning names. Oh, I like to do these types of workouts for all my athletes during this period as they're building up. And I think that's a mistake as well. Every athlete is not a robot. Every athlete needs to be fine-tuned based on the what I mentioned earlier, the set length, the number of reps, the recovery between it, and how you segue that into a week-month periodized program. And I'd always sort of heard that you were a big volume guy. I'm not sure if that's true, but but I've heard that from from multiple, you know, sort of respected names in the sport that you would do a lot of training. Um, but then then I just hear you talk about uh you know, maybe having a focus on shorter, faster stuff uh, being really important. Where do you sit in the in the how much volume should someone do uh, sort of like for, for Ironman and then maybe for, for sprint and Olympic distance triathlon? Yeah, it's a, a very good question, Jack, and it's one that comes up all the time. When people are looking at their uh, entire physiological development over, say, a year, and let's say they've got eight months or nine months before their key race and they're building up uh, over time. Generally when they go out and they're doing a longer run or a longer ride and, and on the run, if some of it's on a softer surface, that's a good idea. Um, the, the pace is, you know, quite often conversation pace. It's aerobic and their fitness level says, well, I can't ratchet this up. So you have about a 12 to 16 week window where you can basically do what people say base train but on this base train i like doing uh faster repeats so they get the neuromuscular response of turning their legs over they they start feeling their stride length length a little bit they feel a little more pop off the ground their hip extension is a little bit greater their arm action is greater so even during that sort of base period 12 to 16 weeks this isn't just all aerobic i think that's a mistake you segue in these shorter segments and and, and typically i'll use the sort of reference model that i said i said 25 seconds to 2 minutes but if you're starting people out and running i start them off in a very short short segment 25 seconds up to about 40 seconds with a 1 to 3 work rest ratio so if it, they go 25 seconds on it they might have a you know minute 15 or minute, minute 20 recovery in between it doesn't take a lot. Where people get in trouble is that their fitness grows really quickly. So at about six weeks from when they start, all of a sudden they, they have great muscular adaptation and all the soft tissue, uh, the fascia, connective tissue, tendons that have pliability, they, de they develop but they don't develop as fast as the, as a muscular system. So a lot of people want to overload their system too quickly by start doing longer intervals or longer sustained efforts. And once they start doing that beyond 12 to 16 weeks for most folks, and they do it every weekend, which I just alluded to, that's where they can get in trouble where they, where they have this uh, overload and they have the inability to recover. In other words, they do a long uh, run on Saturday to do a long ride on Sunday or they throw in a brick on one of those days. And that's kind of the template for a lot of over distance athletes. When athletes do that and they do it over and over and over again, and now they, they move into the 20th week or 24th week and they're still doing the long stuff, but the long sessions become faster each time because their fitness comes up to a point. 
Uh, and if they're going out with their mates, quite often there's someone who's really on in that group who wants to push the pace. So quite often on a run or a ride, it'll be faster than what they had intended, but their egos get worked up and, and the, you know, the pace is, is furious. The, the problem with this is that it really destroys and limits the potential of these energy organelles called the mitochondria, and that fuels your system. And when these mitochondria become battered and the functionality of the mitochondria starts to fall off, and it's really the, the, the precursor to this, is you keep doing long days and you start doing kind of hard year round, you won't be able to extract the best performance in your, in your A races. So after this 12 or 16 weeks, and sometimes even earlier with other athletes, I actually have them go to sometimes three times a month where they might do a longer day. But the intensity of that longer day is at a lower zone. People are familiar with different zones. I use slightly different, but a lot of it's at zone two. So it's conversation pace. But you can interject um, lactate threshold or FTP segments if you're on the bike. You can interject these AE segments where you might have 20 to 30 to 40 minutes of really high, high output on a five-hour bike. I'm not averse to doing longer days as they build up, but I don't like doing them every week like they might have done at the beginning of the year. And then you actually bring the level down a little bit, but keep these high intensity pieces in there. That really brings up what's called a protein called a myokine. These are really favorable. They're good for your heart. They're good for your muscular system. They're good for all your organs. And what I see happening a lot is as people get to their big races, they end up bringing their volume up even more over the last four or five weeks and they go faster and they're flat on race day. They get through three quarters of the bike and they're dead. And by the time they get to the run, they have no legs. So that was a long dissertation, Jack. But that's, I think the, the, the takeaway on this is that you, you cannot do long days year in and year out. And you want to space them out every 10th day 10th or 11th day or twice a month where you maybe go every 14th or 15th day where you do the longer one. And don't be concerned about your top end speed and holding that. Like, you know, you come back to Craig where you go 20 miles at, um, you know, 345 Ks, which he did six minute pace, which is sort of killed him. And you mentioned there that the people do like a little bit too much and, and then they keep upping and upping the volume and, and maybe the intensity and they get to race day and, and on race day they're flat. And, and I hear what you're saying, but how specifically do you think that people prevent that leading into a race? How, how do people actually get the best performance of their whole training cycle on race day? Well, I, there's these marker sets that I was alluding to are, are really, really key. And, um, Again, I, I'm, I'm not averse to having people do a pretty hard test set. And I'll, I'll use a very specific example. Um, Chrissy didn't want to use a power meter. She could access that. She didn't want to use a heart rate monitor. She just wanted to look at speed. And she said, you know, I've kind of done this in the past, but I'd like to be able to, to build up a little bit longer. And one of the things that she did, which was pretty remarkable, uh, as we got into the race season, we're now we're getting closer to the race. I mentioned that these VO2 workouts were really key. I did that with her on the swim. I'll use a, a specific example. And we also did that on the bike, but she did an additional one. So I'll come back to the VO2. 
her telltale sign, it was a very good indicator for me, is that she'd go 90 minutes trying to hold FTP. She didn't know exactly what that is because she didn't look at a power meter, but we knew that it was a, it was a little over 40K an hour. So, and when you're outside and you're working with the elements and, and but you're doing the same course, you're, you're contending with wind and uh, heat and so on. That was a, a, a garden cue that would really be the indicator that I am ready to race this Ironman race. My cycling fitness feels great. She would follow that 90 minute uh, time trial with a short transition, about five or six minutes, not like in a race. And she were, would run 10K at a pretty good clip. She'd run it at 345K. Uh, and so when she got down to the point where she was going for <laughs> over over 40K an hour, and she was averaging 345 per K on the run. And those were back to back. And that took a long time to get to that level. We both knew that this was a great indicator that she was ready for her Ironman race. It was a, you know, roughly a two hour and 15 minute exercise dose. That was a really high, high, high output. I would have her run another six or eight K on the end of that 10 K, but slow. And we'd run this on hard pavement, just like she would in the Ironman race where she had the eccentric load and the shock of not running on a, a softer surface, a dirt surface. So we'd run that, we'd run the whole distance really on a hard surface. So her legs were conditioned to that eccentric load. The VO2 workouts that I mentioned Chrissy and Craig did, and I'm steadfast on this, and I do this with my athletes today, is that as they build up to, towards Kona, seven weeks outside of their major race, we would run a five-week block where they did a VO2. And I'll, I'll make it simple. We kind of made it progressive. But when you're looking at three to seven-minute segments, that's the ideal sweet spot. I would stay down the, on the lower end as we got close to race. So quite often, we did four minutes on the, on the bike. An example on this is that if you go 20 to 24 minutes, you get a pretty good readout on people's VO2. A really tough set, and I did this with Rachel Joyce, was six times four minutes. Uh, six times four minutes, we allow at least four minutes recovery in between, and we're trying to hold at VO2, which was 8 to 15% of other FTP. And I, I did this with some, some athletes on the, on the run as well, but we, we would do the similar, a similar set in the pool. And up to two weeks outside of their major race, they were still doing this VO2 race. Week number two before the race, we, I would do a short block and I usually cut it in half. So if we're doing six times four minutes, I'd go down to four times uh, two minutes or four times three minutes so that the set was, was a lot less, but the speed or the intensity or the power was still there. That's a lot of technical stuff, Jack. <laughs> it's good info though. And it's sort of like insight that you don't really get because um, I think something that you started to, to talk about just before that, that I wanted to get into off hearing you say it is that sort of more is more and more is better is glorified in, in the sport of triathlon a little bit. Um, and I think it's sort of uh, you know, gets glorified because social media, we see it on Strava. We, we watch YouTube videos of, of guys who, who appear to be doing really crazy training and, 
and and you know we hear about like for example a really good example is the Norwegians at the moment with Christian Blumenfeld and Gustav Eden where you just he- you hear like sort of like these mythical training days and and training week volumes they're doing so it's actually good to talk to someone who you know like yourself is a six-time Ironman world champion and and has coached you know two of the best best athletes the sport's ever seen in Chrissy and Craig and and here's specific ways that you can actually get better. And here you talk about that, that maybe more isn't always better. Yeah, that's hits it right on the nose. I, I think a lot of people that your listeners are going to say, well, golly, that's, that doesn't give me the confidence to do an Ironman race. And again, I, if people don't have the sort of the buildup and, and also the season history and they say, Hey, Dave, I, I just want to do a five hour ride. I want to lock in as best I can to my Ironman pace, or maybe even a little bit faster. And I, I've done this many, many times. I've had, uh, w- I've had a five-hour ride with athletes, and I say, well, we're not going to do it all right at Ironman pace, but we'll do four 40-minute segments at even slightly higher than Ironman pace, or 40 minutes, and we'll go above FTP uh, for six to eight minutes within those 40 minutes. So it's 40 minutes at Ironman pace, but we're actually including these higher intensity pieces in there. Four times 40 minutes basically throttles people, two hours and 40 minutes. So, you know, I'll do over half of the time where their output is going to be equal to or better than what they want to do in Ironman pace. And, you know, the remainder, I'll say, okay, just hold what you can hold. Let's finish with a flurry. And I quite often do the, the final 40 minutes over the, the final 40 minutes of their ride. Let's finish with your best output. So when I look at athletes that say, I need to do a longer ride and I need to do it hard. Or I need to do a longer run and do it hard. I think that's fine. You're getting closer to the race, but don't do them every week. And, and if you're looking at sort of backtracking from your race, if you're looking at a, your last final ride as a confidence builder and really checking, I would do this about three weeks outside of your race. So 21 days shy of your race. And an athlete comes to me and said, Dave, I just got to do the, you know, five hour ride. And I want to, I want to smash it the whole time. I'll say, let's do it. Let's go do it. And you might give them the recipe that I just said four times 40 minutes where you actually have segments that are higher than their best day projection for their Ironman race. I want to get off the bike and I want to run X. I don't like 20 minute runs off the bike. I don't think they tell you anything because you want to look at your nutritional intake what your fluid loss is, sweat rate. And so if we do a some kind of brick bike run and they want to test themselves, all right, let's do this five-hour ride and let's run for 75 minutes and include, and quite often, in a, this is a, a real live case, in this 75 minutes, I'll do some segments that are a little bit longer. And I'll say, we're going to do six times eight minutes in there. And I want you to hold your 70.3 race uh, pace what typically happens with a lot of amateurs is that their run pace is quite a bit slower than their aerobic pace. I never train people at their Ironman pace if they're an amateur. It's too slow. And and I would say this to Jan for Dana, who I think is just such a brilliant athlete. Uh, he hasn't run to his capacity in Kona. He holds the record. He's a marvelous athlete, but his run marathon is not up to his potential or, or his capability. He should be running 230 based on his other times. He has not done that. Uh, he ran 241, I think, you know, as his best run split. Well, uh, you know, that that is not commensurate with, with his ability. Why not? I don't know why. 
I don't know what they're doing, but it doesn't dictate to his ability when he's he's running 106 off the bike in a 70.3 world championship, which I saw him do in South Africa. And he's running 241 off the bike in Kona. I mean, it's it's really dreadful for Jan. And, and there's a lot of other athletes that have amazing running talent. And I want them to just smash the run time where it really counts. And that's the world championships. And they've been, they have not been able to do that. And the women have not been able to do it either. Do you think it's just because the the bike is getting faster and faster that these guys sort of are constantly getting off the, the bike in Kona, you know, not able to, to do their best marathon? It's not a bike race, Jack. I mean, I think that's nonsense. I mean, I, I know you said it very politely and I hear this all the time. I, I think if, you know, athletes are have the capability of, of putting that output out, whatever, whatever it is, looking at X Watts or they, you know, they want to ride the Ironman course in, in 410, uh, you know, that's sensational, but it shouldn't salvage uh, their ability to, to run fast. And I think it's a lack of confidence. If, if it becomes a bike race, and people are just trying to finish with the top five guys or top five women, but they have the inability to put any sort of run leg together. What's the point? So I don't think it's, you know, yeah. Is it a bike race? I mean, we, we raced on the bike, Greg and I back in 94 and we were way slower. The, the barometer was, could you go 40 K an hour for four thirty six? That was, um, I think four thirty seven was the time we did in, in, um, in Kona, there was three or four guys behind us. I never saw them. They never came up. I didn't even know they were there until I saw splits years later that, wow, we kind of had all the same times. They were following us. I'm thinking, what were they thinking? Was this out of their element or was this just right? Or they said, you know, I'm good to take third or fourth in this race. Uh, you know, if I ever coached an athlete and said, I'll be happy at, at pro level, I'll be happy with third or fourth, I, I would kick them in the shins. What? What are you talking about? You're going to this race to win. And this is how you can win. So I coming back to your comment, I, I don't think it's, you know, are the athletes faster, better? Yes, they are faster. The bike technology is amazing. Um, incredible. I have a real fast bike, not like any that I rode in Ironman races. Their bikes are faster. But does that mean that they're having to push harder because they want the glory of having the fastest bike split? Well, I don't want to coach an athlete that thinks the bike ride is the end all. And that really determines who's the greatest athlete. That's nonsense. I think something interesting you just said there was, was that, that if you're there as a professional, you should be there to win. And, and it gives us a little bit of a, like an insight into, into your mindset and, and how you think about uh, performing as a professional athlete and, and probably a little insight into why you were so successful and, and arguably the greatest triathlete of all time. Um, how, how did like, is that just innately in you? Are you just innately a competitive winner? Like for, for example, um, something I also mentioned in the intro was your, your, you know, famous iron war in, in the 1989 Ironman world championships where you ran side by side with Mark Allen, a guy who also run, uh, won Kona six times. That sort of battle, like that's not for the weak. That it's a, it's very, very hard to, to stay in a battle like that. And uh, like we've never really seen it again, which sort of indicates how hard that is to do. Um, so were you working on the mental side of things like, or, or, or has that just been there for you? 
Uh, a little bit of both. Uh, I, I you know, try to do these mental cues with athletes. And uh, there was a, a sports psychologist I went to undergraduate school with him and he was teaching at CU Boulder. And um, this was in, in 94. So it was after the 89 race that you were chatting about. But it was something that I was keenly aware of. And I'll, I'll simplify this and have a shorter answer. He said, you have to kind of weed out all the things that you uh, should do. Uh, I should do this. I should do that. If someone does this in a race, and this really applies to anything that you have stacked up on your life table of, gosh, I got to get through this stuff today because it's driving me crazy. Um, and so he stepped away. His name was Jeff. He said, and he stepped away and he said, Dave, I want you to write down a list of all the things that you should do. And I had this amazing list. I, he said, I'll give you 10 minutes. And then he came back and he said, well, that's lengthy. And I said, yeah, boy, I got to get all these things done before I you know, go to Ironman again. And, um, and he said, what do you want? And I looked at him. <laughs> I said, well, what do I want? And my, I had two boys at the time. They were young. I said, well, I want to be a good dad and a good husband. And I, and I want to uh, smash the Ironman. <laughs> and he goes, okay, well, that's what you want. What can you filter out on the should, should have list? So, you know, it was kind of a simple thing. And uh, he also added something else. He said, Dave, I've seen your race for a, a lot of years and you seem to be very spontaneous to the moment. And he always left me with this line, which I've shared with many people. Uh, and it's, and it's very simplistic. He said, you're able to maintain the, the psychological and the mental tenacity because you can respond to the moment. And he said, do what you can do at the moment. Do what you can do at the moment. And, and don't put an anvil on your shoulder that, I, oh, I felt really tired on that last hill. My legs are feeling flat. Oh, my back hurts. What, what can you do right now? And I, and I always had that kind of uh, innate spirit in me that as fatigued as I was, oh, I, I can rally. And, and there's not an athlete alive. And, and Jack, you, you know this well, is, you know, you, you can have days where you feel real flat. And you think, okay, I'm just going to smooth it out until I get to that fence post up there or, you know, 500 meters ahead or 200 meters ahead. Now I'm okay. I'm riding better or my running form. I'm going to think about my posture, my hips underneath my head in a neutral position. You start giving yourself these sort of physical little cues and that allows you to mentally relax. So this is what I did. I would always go through this physical inventory and I would start from my engine. So for example, on the bike, I'd start from my hips and move up to my shoulders, to my hands, to my face, to my neck, to my cervical spine, thoracic spine, lumbar spine, glutes, all the way down to my calves and my feet. And same thing on the run. I, I would go through this, this inventory of just trying to be calm, uh, physically calm, and that would calm me mentally. And I, I did this because I trained a lot by myself, not, not necessarily by choice, but I, there, there weren't other athletes I trained with. They just weren't around. I had a close friend who was a physician and uh, he ended up, he's the guy, his name is Mike. He talked me into doing the Ironman in, in 1979. I did it in 80. And um, we used to play all these cat and mouse games. You know, he'd turn around early and I'd try to, I wouldn't see him for maybe an hour. And I try, I know I, I, I'm going to catch him. I know I'm going to catch him. It was just one of those things that you're, kind of uh, invested in psychologically. And I think those little mental games based on the physical cues that you can really control, calm you down and allow you to respond at the moment. And I did that all the time. Um, it didn't work all the time, <laughs> but 
that those little elements just said, okay, I can go faster. I can go faster. And I, you know, I like to see athletes just push the throttle as best they can and not give up at, at any moment in a race where they, they're still there. They're still there. You can come back. And, and we've seen great moments where athletes rally and they're seemingly out of it. And now all of a sudden they're, they're back on the heels of, you know, their main competitor. I mean, I just relish those moments when I see the best athletes still working darn hard. And is there anybody that you look at in sort of current day triathlon, maybe in like, you know, the last 10, 15 years who, who you just think personifies this, like someone who you just think was, was as mentally tough and hard as anyone you've ever seen? Oh, I, I admire lots of the current day athletes. I think they're just phenomenal and they just have a work ethic and they're tenacious, just like uh, Chrissy and Craig and Mark Allen, you know, they have a willingness to, to suffer and persevere and be in control. I mean, I, I mentioned Jan Ferdano, marvelous, uh, Alistair Brownlee, incredible, incredible athlete. And I just, you know, love watching the ITU races where he would just, you know, pummel people and yell at them and sort of dictate what's going on, going on out there. And I thought, wow, this is just uh, re remarkable. And, you know, watching Daniela Reef uh, rally back and Tilly and Cone a couple of years ago in, in 19, where she, um, I think she got a jellyfish. She was down 10 minutes and then came back. And, you know, of course, uh, uh, Marinda Carfrey, I have the greatest admiration for her. And, and, um, and she was in my group at times when Chrissy was here. And that was an amazing rivalry. But, you know, she just said, I'm never going to give up. And I thought, wow, this is, this is the gift. And I see the gift in a lot of athletes. It's funny you just mentioned uh, Alastair Brownlee yelling at his competitors in a, in a triathlon because uh, in my, my own head, I was still listening to you, but it sort of took me away to a, another story that I'd been told out training. Um, I won't mention who, but uh, I, I was training with someone and they were telling me about a race they did in Madrid I think it was 2009 or 2010 an ITU race in Madrid which that course has a really um quite famous hill it's it's quite a hard hill on every lap of the bike and in ITU you you ride on road bikes not on time trial bikes but uh, around that time people were starting to use sort of these little makeshift aero bars or or yeah. Yeah, little aero yeah. bars on their on their road bikes and, and it was right. pretty new <laughs> and the Brownleys either didn't have them on their bikes yet or had them but really didn't use them uh, and this, this guy was in the front group out of the swim with the Brownleys and they were in a group of about, of about 10 people, um, off mm -hmm. the front and they were rolling turns and, um, and the Brownleys were really pushing that as they're known for, they'll go to the front and, and they'll yep. encourage for, for lack of a better word, or maybe just to yep. say it politely, everyone else to ride hard. And, and this person who I was training with went to the, the front of the group in their aero bars <laughs> and and slowed up the pace a little bit compared to what the Brownleys had been pushing, but but were still trying to to get away. In their mind, they were telling me, "Yeah, well, I'm trying to help this group group get away, and I'm motivated by by the Brownleys and and that sort of thing." And and Alistair rode up next to him about three seconds after he took the lead because you know he wasn't quite going uh -huh. at the pace Alistair would have liked it. And and Alistair just looked at him and said, "Get out of your aero bar bars, you pussy." <laughs> And I well, thought that, that seems fairly benign because I, I've I met, I met Alistair a few years ago, and of course he's come, come over to Kona, and I think he's a great guy, and he has this real nasty, caustic, you know, seemingly behavior that a lot of the athletes that he races with, including yourself, that you know, sort of resent. Like, how, how can you say that to me? But it also kind of instilled 
confidence in himself and like i'm i'm dictating this race and i'm the guy that is controlling everything about it and i thought well good on him you know it's a short brutally hard race and both the brothers would try to go to the front and just say we're gonna win it outright which they did in a number of races yeah, well, I guess at his best, Alistair is, is probably, you know, he, he's had probably the, the best single day performances we've ever seen in triathlon. So it is funny he hasn't quite been, been able to transfer it to, to Kona where obviously you had so, so much success. Why do you think that is? Because you sort of talked about how uh, having that, that really good top end and, and all the benefits of having that really good top end benefit you at Kona and and he's arguably or well, I would say definitely uh, had that better than anyone else in the, the sport of the triathlon ever um, so why do you think he hasn't quite been able to make the shift into Ironman oh that's a hard question Jack I mean I, I would hate to you know put a label on him. this is the reason why because I, I don't know and I don't know what he does in his programs I, I've read about it and and like the two Norwegians that you alluded to I know you know Alistair and his brother did you know some big volume days and some amazing uh, workouts that you read about? I think I'm like, gosh, how, you know, how they even get through that. Um, so you know, there's a finite. It's not uh, people have said if you keep running, you're going to wear yourself out. Well, the there is some truth to that that you can wear out your physiology. And I talked about the, the mitochondria, which is the biggest thing, but the 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 muscle cell has this. Uh, uh, comprised of what's called a myofibril and it gets squashed. And so a lot of people, when they, they squash it over time, it doesn't have the recoil. So when you land with your feet, you don't have that pop. And you certainly see this with you know guys my age or in their seventies where they land and it's real flat footed and, and they kind of slap the ground. They get more forward flex. Their posture starts to change a little bit. Their arm action becomes more chicken-like where they keep their arms winged back and their heads in forward flexion. I'm not saying Alistair is looking like that, but he's done a lot in a short period of time. He started at a young age. Has he kind of worn, worn his muscle cells out a little bit? I don't know. Um, and, and I think if he continues to do the volume, and again, there's an I don't know on that one as well. Um, he's going into these races, and I, I talked to him about Kona. I said, don't try to lead as you're going through Kailua. Uh, there's about an 8K loop, and it's really hard. And you go up the Palani Hill, and he just comes blasting out of there. And we, uh, we saw Sebastian Keeley do the same thing. He made it two minutes on this. Well, they're putting out 500 watts to do that, to catch the best guys in the world. And everyone's going, I remember when Keeley did it. Keeley is right there. That shattered him. He couldn't break the group. I think Alistair... Um, did, was able to get away with this because he was he's so brilliantly talented uh, in the ITU races. And maybe he just needs to sit back a little bit and exploit his other talents so that he gets off the bike a tad fresher and he's able to run like a deer like he normally can. But, you know, again, I, I don't know, Jack. Uh, I don't know if he's had a finite amount of time. It's something that I've looked at over years. Are they still able to, to run fast? off the bike in an Ironman distance, not in a 70.3, but can they go the whole distance and do they still have good running legs? And when I'd start to see the running times with both men and women start to fall off a little bit, I said, you know, I've been very emphatically and in kind of a nasty <laughs> statement. Oh, they're done. Their career is done. They, they're, 
for whatever reasons, their legs aren't responding and look at their times. And I'm not going to re recite anyone in, in this comment, but I've seen this happen over years, both genders. And I guess like following on from what we're talking about with Alistair uh, and to loop it back to yourself is when you were involved in battles in your career, when you're, you know, running head to head with people, when you're on the bike with people um, and, and like we've sort of mentioned a couple of times now, the, the really famous example with Mark Allen in the Iron War, how did you go about, you know, the interaction with your competitors? Were you a, a shit talker? Would you just be completely <laughs> silent? Would you had, have conversation with them? How did that actually play out? I like your Aussie accent, a shit talker. Um, <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I really wasn't. You know, I, I felt that that was unnecessary. What, and it's just not my character. I can be very, very candid without lacing it with a lot of superlatives. So uh, th th there was a, um, and I, I was totally unaware of this, and it wasn't a brash comment by, by my end, but all my competitors might have taken it this way. And, and I heard from several people, and, and Mark and I, really didn't talk about that 89 race till about 15 years later. Uh, and that was kind of ironic. We had read about it in, in publications. I heard Mark's voice quotations. He read mine, but we really didn't talk about it face to face. And we did a, a, a public event in Los Angeles. We were together and it was like the first time uh, we're sharing these things. Bob Babbitt was narrating and all of a sudden he's saying things. I said, really? <laughs> I didn't know you were thinking that. One thing that came up in the press conference uh, and the question came to me was, hey, Dave, you know, what do you think you're capable of? You know, the time I had the, the fastest time to date. And I, I said very candidly, and it wasn't arrogantly. I just said, well, uh, I'd like to go under 50 minutes on the swim. I think I'm capable of doing that. The, the bike, I, I really think I can go 435. That seemed like, a, you know, that was definitely doable. That was feasible. 435 would be a, a good pace. And I know I can run six minute pace or 345 Ks. I can run 237. And every, all my competitors were right there. Mark was right there. I didn't see any of their reaction. And I didn't, wasn't purposely stated that way, which sounds like, wow, you're really boasting before the gun goes off. I just felt like the question was, what do you think you're able to do? Here it is. I hadn't even added up the times on what it came out. I said, well, that's what I can do individually. And just we'll, we'll put the sum together in a couple transitions. And that's what I'm going to do this year. Uh, I think everyone gave up then except Mark. And uh, you know, Mark's had many, many funny comments about that. Like, wow, that I got to be ready. But during the race itself, uh, I knew Mark was on my feet on the swim, which he had been in many, many races. And and yeah, that bugged me. I said, damn, why can't I get away from this guy? You know, I just don't have that speed. And he's sitting kind of in a sweet spot, but it didn't really bother me. But on the bike, uh, there were several times where I said, I, I want to take off. This is, I'm going to drop Mark. I didn't realize there was three other guys right behind us, but I never saw him. And so I went really hard for, oh, I don't know, about 4K and really up to speed. And I said, I'm sure I got a gap. And then I realized without really looking back, I knew he was there legitimately at you know the legal distance and i said well that didn't work i'm going to do it again so as, as we got to about 150k i said i'm going to pull one more of these things and i felt pretty good on the bike uh but there were times where i did not and you know i've said my, my legs feel flat uh you know i hope mark doesn't go around me right now because i don't know if i can respond so i tried it again i didn't didn't do it but it wasn't um 
it wasn't a defeated moment. I just said, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to outrun him. I'm going to do it on the run. So we went out together as everyone's watched the video. And um, I just kind of felt if we were together and I shared this with, with my really close friend, Mike, who actually talked to me in doing the 80 race and he was there. And I just said, you know, if we're together, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to break Mark on the downhill of Polani. I mean, I can run fast downhill. I look terrible. I look just so awful, <laughs> but I can move pretty quickly. And I said, I'm not going to wait for the last 300 meters along the lead uh, drive because Mark, I felt had maybe the top end if we were together. So the, the race, uh, race was very interesting. And, and I, I brought this up several times and it was more a reflection of, boy, I wish I did this differently or I wish this transpired. Three miles into the race, I had the inside pass to the aid stations. And when you're eyeballing an aid volunteer, you know, you're kind of pointing at them and say, I want you to come out with me and run with me and give me that aid. You got to run, run with me. And Mark realized that I, I kind of had first choice. He made sort of an aggressive movement. I was aware of it when it happened. It was, you know, early on in the race. And now he was on the inside. And so I said, well, that's okay. I'll just drop back get my aid and then kind of surge back up. I thought about this in the race. We had 10 miles to go. And I said, well, on the way back, I'm going to have the inside pass. Mark came around me again. And after doing a lot of these surges from three plus miles to now at um, 16 miles or so, I said, gee, I'm on the outside again. I got to back, back off. And all those little surges, and I'm not saying this is why Mark beat me, but it, it certainly didn't help <laughs> my energy tank. The last one where I kind of surged back up was getting close to where the point Mark made his move. And I said, okay, I'm going to get back up to him. I, I'll take my time because when I get to the top of Plani Hill, that's when I'm going to win. Well, Mark had another plan and everyone knows the outcome. He opened up a gap and I couldn't answer to it. And uh, by the time we got to the top, there was about a 35 second differential. And, and I knew Mark was on a magic carpet going down the backside and he was going to win the race. So, but I never went into that race thinking Mark's better than I am. He's going to beat me in this race. He's really had a sensational year. I just said, I know he's going to be competitive. I felt intuitively that we were going to have a closer race, but I would prevail. Hey, Dave, like how, how does it sit with you that you're a six-time Ironman world champion and, and the race that you're most well-known for is a race that you lost? <laughs> oh, I don't know. You know, time's a big healer, Jack. You know, it's, uh, you know that, that one in itself and just reciting that particular scenario on the run, Oh, I could have, could have, could have. That was one of those should have things. And I, I said, you know, I, I reacted at the moment and that was the best I could do. And, you know, Mark had a sensational day and I, and, uh, you know, I had a, a great day and I was second. It wasn't my best race ever. I, Mark always wants to say that, but I don't think so. Time-wise, time-wise it was, um, you know, I'm always introduced Jack as Dave Scott, as you started off this conversation, Dave Scott, six-time Ironman world champion. And I've mentioned this in many public forums. I've always felt that when you're mentally challenged to the last seed that you have in your soul, the ability to extract that final bit when, when seemingly defeat isn't looking at you 
in the worst form possible in, in any race where you're saying I'm defeated, I've lost, I've failed. I failed in this race and I fear this failure, but yet I'm there. My, my greatest race was 1996. I came in fifth. No one, some people remember it. Some people don't. That was the last Ironman that I finished 96. And I, I felt quietly uh, and very quietly that I could win. I was second to Greg in 94. I dropped a pretty heavy weight on my toe in 95, broke it and couldn't do the race in 95 Then came back in 96. And I was 42. And I said, oh, I think I can win this race. I, I ran poorly against Greg. That really bothered me. I didn't run up to, to where I was before. And then uh, as the race unfolded, I had a really poor swim. I didn't feel very good. I got caught in this white water of, and I recognized a lot of the athletes around me. And I said, well, these are slower athletes. I should be up there. I could see the flurry ahead of me, you know, a couple hundred yards, but I said, okay, don't, you know, don't worry. I'll, I'll I'm going to move on the bike. My bike, the fitness was extraordinary, at least for myself, or I thought it was. And I got out of the bike and I said, oh, wow, you know, they don't feel good, but they'll come around. And they just never came around. Um, and it was, it was about 130 K into the ride. And I finally quit feeling sorry for myself and people were passing me and even my competitors were going, come on, Dave, let's go. My legs just felt flat. It felt like I had ridden an Ironman the next day. I had ridden 180 K the day before. I, I just couldn't push the pedals. I wasn't hungry. I wasn't tired. I wasn't breathing. My muscularly, I was just dead. But then at, at that point at a, you know, around 130 K, I just said, Hey, I get to run, you know, it's a long run. I'm just going to, uh, go as hard as I can on this run and see what happens. And I always reflected on that race that is that that was the moment that I said, I, I, I'm back racing. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to fail. And I have this amazing opportunity. I get to run a marathon and I'm going to see how far, far I can go and how quickly I can catch competitors. And so that was a telling moment for me. And uh, I didn't know it at the time. I had no idea until the next day. I got off the bike in 26 and never been in that situation ever, not even close to it. And I, I ended up hollering at my friends and family. And I said, I just want to get in the top 10, just get me in the top 10, which to everyone else on paper goes, how, how can you accept top 10? You've been uh, second three times, as you said, and you, and you were a uh, six-time champion. And I just kept thinking, boy, if I can get in the top 10, because I thought I was in 50th place. So I caught, I finally caught the 10th guy. And I, my recollection, it was, it was about 32K, 33K into the race. I caught number 10. And I, I was moving, I was mowing by people. And I just, you know, kept saying, I, you know, I feel great. It's amazing. I feel awesome. Didn't think about the bike. I just said, I'm going to catch the next guy. Like, Where's number nine, number eight. And finally, uh, knew I was in fifth and I just kind of ran out of real estate. I said, I can't catch those guys in front of me, but, you know, coming across the line in fifth that year in, in 92, when I was 42 and with the circumstances that I just described, I kind of felt that was my best race ever. Yeah. It's, it's funny because you also said like, uh, and I know at this point you'd, you'd, you'd like you said, you'd won it six times and you'd finished finished second three times so that's that's nine very very good performances at the world championships so you know perform like that's a record that no one else has um but but it is funny that that 
on that particular day in that moment you were happy with 10th place where you know something you said earlier was that if a, an athlete comes to you and they're they're not you know there to win and they're happy with anything other than winning that, that that's something you would kick them in the shins for so isn't it funny how I, I guess maybe because of the success you'd already had and and because of your age and your situation that day that you know in that moment a top 10 was was probably not as good as a win but but not far off it for you uh no i don't look at it that way jack i <laughs> you're very eloquent with your voice but i <laughs> i i looked at that race i'm gonna win i i went in that with fully conviction that i there i'm not gonna come in second i'm gonna win i knew who was towing up to the to starting line i'd been there two years prior in 94 it was 1996 and i just said very confidently to myself, okay, this is my race. But as the race evolved, as I just described, I just couldn't garner the energy. And it wasn't psychological on the swim or the bike. I think I had just come in there flat. I think my training, contrary to the other times, I didn't train properly on the swim and the bike. And so when I looked at that moment to switch something around, it wasn't, oh, Dave, you're six-time Ironman champion and you've got three seconds. I've never even thought of that until you just mentioned it right now. <laughs> I just said, you know, can I win this race for myself, within myself? And that doesn't mean first right now because I, I felt like, okay, that is that feasible? I don't know, but I'm going to run as fast as I can. And I ended up running 245 that year, which wasn't my best run, but it was you know, it was solid and obviously moved me up from 26th to, to fifth place. And so when I looked at the, the, the final results, I got fifth. Well, yeah, I was mad, Jack. I said, God, I got fifth in this race. I did something wrong in my training. Did I do as well as I could? And did I give up? And, you know, what did I want in that race? I didn't want to walk away from that race at 42 and to say I'm a loser because everyone else would have said that. You should have quit Dave in 94. You got second to Greg Welch, and now you're a loser. I didn't want to be labeled like that. People may think that I'm getting fifth, but I looked at it as a victory because I salvaged as best I could on that day. The result was fantastic for me. Hey, Dave, just something I just thought about then. When you were racing, and, and maybe even to this day now, were you a very superstitious guy? Like You'd been there so many times and won so many times that that I sort of – I assume you would have had some superstitions because like you, you know, as an athlete, if you've performed well once, you sort of want to replicate that. So, you, you know, you know, you play tricks on yourself and, and try and give yourself like this, this idea that you have more control than you, than you, than you maybe do sometimes. Did, did you have anything like that? No. Yeah. I looked at every year as a different template and sort of questions that you talked about in training, uh, the one thing I did when I was in college, I swam and I always did 3,000 swam yards. We swam, I swam 3,000 yards every Tuesday. And I did that for every Tuesday for four years in a row. And I hated it. It demoralized me. It ruined me. But when I started training for triathlons post-college, I had this kind of openness that I sort of evolved that there was never a perfect template. And every year, even though I had, you know, certain blocks that I tried to follow and I would reflect back on it was a new year so every June or July or August always looked a little bit different my fitness was always different so I didn't have any superstition going into the race I knew when I'd land in Kona 
I like the, you know, the arid conditions. Uh, you know, I love the lava there, the, the road. It wasn't technical. It was just out and back and do it again on the run. So I didn't land there with any sort of uh, superstitious type of reflection of I've done it, done it well, I'm going to fail this time. Never. And back then, and, and maybe also talk about how this has evolved over time, how much uh, thought did you put into your diet and, and like more broadly, like your race weight? Uh, well, that's a really big question. I can stand up in front of a group and I was in Australia a few years back and gave a clinic and there were some old people in there like myself that were, that were at the clinic. This is 25 years later. And they said, Dave, you're talking about this uh, low carb, high fat keto stuff now and 25 years ago you're talking about stuffing yourself with carbohydrates and i said yeah sorry i'm glad you're still alive and so i, I look at the dietary nutritional changes and i really follow the science to the t i love talking about it uh people will come back and they 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 want to challenge me like dave you, you won the ironman six times and you just were this carbohydrate machine i say yes i was and I ate some lousy carbohydrates, very refined carbohydrates, and I could seemingly race well. I did not recover as well as I uh, have. And really since the mid nineties where I started shifting my diet and I tried vegan diet, I tried vegetarian. Uh, and then I started adding cold water fish and then started adding uh, grass fed beef. If I had changed my diet, and I say this, and this is arrogant, if I changed my diet and what I'm doing now, I would have won it 12 times. I, you know, I think despite or in spite of what I ate and what I felt was good science, because we know, we know carbohydrates work, and I, and I never refute that now. It's just that there are better choices, and there's certainly better choices for recovery. So I you know, was able to manage with uh, my gut seemed to handle um, the carbohydrates, and uh, you know I did I did fairly well on them. But I have uh, never said in, in the last fifteen or twenty years that that was the optimal diet, and I won it because of my nutritional intake. I, I what I talk about now, and fifty percent of the questions I get now are on nutrition, and they're on nutrition for health, or on nutrition for recovery, nutrition and training, nutrition and racing. These are, you know, another four hour talk, Jack, but it's a huge, huge, huge topic and one that I love to delve into. And I have no trouble standing in front of a group and saying, yeah, I was wrong. Sorry. <laughs> and like when you coach athletes nowadays or when you were coaching the pros, is, is that something that you are really big on? Do you even bring it up or do you only bring it up if they ask or, or if an athlete comes to you and says, hey, Hey Dave, I want to be coached by you. Is it just a non-negotiable that you talk about? Well, non-negotiable is not the word I ever use. And I said we collaborate. And non-negotiable isn't isn't my vernacular. So if someone comes into me and said, "I Dave, I heard you're, you I eat keto, so it's very low, very very low carbohydrate." And uh, you know, the first thing that I look at is is I say, "Hey, I'd like to have you have a complete blood panel." And you will get a complete blood panel on you. Then we're going to be able to look at some of the inflammatory markers that are going to indicate your current diet is ineffective. And, and most of the dietary issues and the inflammatory markers that people have, where it's uh, the, the, the sticky types of LDL, C-reactive protein, uh, 
I have a, a whole a slew of uric acid uh, is a result of eating too much carbohydrate or refined sugar. So I always start with the foundation. Let's find out how you're doing. And metabolically, some athletes can eat like a garbage can and they can be okay. Not very few per percentage wise, but you start, I always start there. And then I say, well, where are the issues that you have just on your health? If I'm talking to a 55 year old, as opposed to a 25 year old, 25 year old is, is kind of myopic to, well, I, I can eat anything I want. I can drink anything I want. I feel great. A 55 year old is much more concerned about their mortality and I don't feel as healthy as I should. However, I think a lot of, uh, uh, everyone's basically younger than me now, it, 20 year olds, 30 year olds, 40 year olds, they're going to get to a point where they say, you know, I've got these GI issues. I get a lot of gas. I got, I'm bloated. Um, I'm vomiting in my races. Uh, you know, I find this one drink really repulsive and I, and I just know I'm not running to my potential. I kind of go through a, a, you know, a long list, like, you know, where are the pitfalls in your nutritional plan profile, your outcome of your races, and then just talk to them about it. And I, again, love talking about the science behind both sides. I never tell an athlete that you need to eat like me right now. Okay, well, I was carbohydrate before, and now I'm keto. Uh, I, I've never, never come in with that uh, angle. But nutrition, like, for example, I, I have these camps at Four Seasons uh, in Kona, right on the Kona course, uh, beautiful location. Nutrition is a topic that we address all week long. And I have two talks on nutrition because people are really interested in it. Yeah. It, it's like, um, it's one of those things where everyone sort of is trying to do the best thing for themselves. Like they're, they're, they're no one is sort of purposefully trying to like uh, harm, harm their own performance, but there's so much information out there. It's like, it's a minefield of information. One person says this is best. One person says this is best. It's that it can be quite hard to, to know what to do. Um, so yeah, hearing that you, that you'll like take a blood panel and that sort of thing, it, it seems like a really objective way to talk about food. Okay. Well, let's see if what you're doing is working. And, and then if, if, if you have these markers in your blood that suggest um, it's not, well, let's try some other stuff and, and see if that works. Yeah. It's not, yeah. It's not just trying some other stuff. We, we know if you make some changes, dietary changes, it, that stuff will, will really make a dramatic change. So, you know, if you're looking at uh, a complete iron pa panel, both genders, not, not just with women that historically will have uh, low iron because of their um, period or they're not eating enough. And, and I look at all sorts of blood panels. And so I see a lot of people that have uh, fairly good looking hematocrit and hemoglobin, but their iron stores or ferritin levels are real, real, real low. And this could be a gut absorption issue. So you kind of come back to like your gut microbiome. We got to make sure that's straightened out. Are you getting uh, B12 and, and folic acid, B9 and, and B1, B2 are also your blood B vitamins. Is it a thyroid issue? So I, I like having to check the whole uh, stratosphere. And we know that, and I was talking about the, the uh, long distance training and increasing these inflammatory proteins called cytokines, the good ones are the mild kinds, the, the cytokines, the inflammatory ones, which go up with people that have had COVID, their cytokine, they get this, what's called a cytokine storm. And, and that's kind of a scary thing because it sort of consumes your body. 
the cytokines go up with carbohydrate intake, excessive carbohydrate intake, and they also go up with long distance training. So, and it's not something I make up. There's good, there's very good science on this. So do, do I like that result science wise? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's easy to, easy to talk about, but I, I like introducing changes that people have. And then now the, the very first one, I have lots of slides and do lots of talks on this is to get rid of your polyunsaturated omega-6 fats. Those are the ones that really cause cell destruction. So you look at corn oil and canola oil and safflower oil and uh, so soybean oil, uh, cottonseed. Those are the, the real bad ones. And they're put in packaging uh, because they increase shelf life. So I, you know, I always say, what do you got in your pantry? What do you got in your refrigerator? And I start whittling that down first. And people make some maybe some dramatic changes, but they, a lot of, a lot of athletes eat like, you know, garbage cans and they just are able to say, Hey, I, I look good in my skinny jeans and boy, you know, I'm amazing. But I say, but, but inside, if we chopped you open, you're not ticking away like you should. And that's quite often the case. Something that I've heard about a lot, like I, that I've ha had a lot of people talk to me about and um, experience myself at certain points is, is when you are training a lot, you know, it doesn't have to be for triathlon. It could be for running or it could be for, for any sport really. Um, is that you like a lot of people will try and eat really well. And then they'll, because they try and eat really well, they'll have big periods where they, they like overeat and, and they're sort of on this like really bad roller coaster and, and really bad cycle with their, with their diet. Do you find like when you're working with athletes and, and when you were training yourself, did you find that, that you were sort of on that, uh, restrict binge cycle ever, or, or do you deal with that very common commonly? Uh, well, personally, I was on that binge cycle all the time. I mean, I was a carbohydrate guy, tried to diffuse my mental issues by eating more and I'd end up putting weight on. And, um, and so I would, it was sort of, a, you know, it's like an alcoholic is sort of self-inflicted. I would just eat more knowing that it's abusive and I'd gain weight. And then I'd try to rebound and start training again. I'd feel slow and fat and all the above. And, you know, it was a very destructive psychological uh, cycle, but physically it, it uh, really throttles your system. However, you can make some pretty dramatic changes by changing your diet. And you, you can get some pretty dramatic changes in, in two to three days. So when I tell people, okay, you've been eating this, let's do this. Let's maybe be a little, little more forthright and, and well-defined what we're going to do in two or three days. Um, you know, if we did a blood panel again on you in two or three days, we're going to see some um, return on our investment by eating better. But yeah, I was terrible during the, my career and I had these ups and downs psychologically. And we know that the carbohydrates... Um, you know, this gut brain connection is really, really key and paramount for individual health and athletic performance. And in a lot of ways, I abused it like a, you know, like an alcoholic by eating way too many carbohydrates, overeating many, 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 many times, almost every year that I was able to win Ironman, I had some of these destructive periods. But, you know, people look at the end result and say, well, you want Ironman, you're, <laughs> you're a carbohydrate eater. And I said, yeah, I know. And I wish I had done differently. 
Yeah. So what's your advice to people if they are sort of on that same cycle you're on? Is it, would your advice just be to go and go and do what you're saying? Hey, let's go and go, go and get yourself a blood panel so you can see what you're doing to yourself or, or, or would you not really, uh, do you not really have sort of set advice because everyone's individual and everyone's doing like everyone's doing it for different reasons and that, that kind of thing? No, there's set advice that, and you just, I said it earlier and you just recited it go get a complete blood panel and a complete blood blood panel. Most of them are kind of dumbed down. I don't know about Australia, but in the States, they, they really are. Cause just looking at some of the key markers for cardiovascular health. Uh, you know, for example, if they're looking at total cholesterol, someone's going to have a high cholesterol index, but they're not fractionating the cholesterol. So there there's good types of LDL called APOB, apolipoprotein B, and those should be fraction. They should be fractionated. You're going to have a high density lipoprotein. Those are the good ones. So a lot of athletes will have really, really high values. And if they go to low, lower carb, they can be astronomical. So the total cholesterol count can be high on paper, but they're not looking at the fractionated LDLs and the HDLs. The triglycerides, which are the circulating blood fats, are brought up by carbohydrates, not fats. And so athletes can have high triglyceride levels, which can bring up that whole cholesterol count, which again is not the value that they should look at. So they got to go to a health practitioner that really looks at a total complete panel. Um, I send them out all the time to athletes and I um, have nutritional consults. And, and the first thing I start with is kind of a profile, four-day dietary intake. I have them get a blood panel, send that back to me. And then we get on a phone for a 90 minute zoom chat. <laughs> so yeah, you gotta, you gotta start with the, you know, what's that person's uh, meta uh, metabolism that allows them to process good food, bad food. And what are those markers that we can really discern your diet is wrecking you or you've, you're in good shape. And, and like, I, I should probably already know this, but um, do you take on people now? Like, so can people, you know, triathletes and, and runners and, and the like, everyday people, can they just message you and, and, and you'll just take them on as a nutrition client or, or are you only doing like sort of triathlon specific coaching? What does like, what does your life look no, like? I, I, take on, I take on anyone. Cause when you talk about nutrition, I mean, I have all different walks of life and I, you know, obviously I have a, an appeal to, um, senior citizens, because I'm senior. And so I get, you know, I get people, hey, I walk every day, day, but, I, you know, I've, I've, I've gained 10 kilograms over the last three years, and I want to lose this weight, and I don't feel very good. And I've got these issues. Well, I talk to those people. Yeah, people can email me, they can um, find me on my website and just send me a note. There's, uh, I have a newsletter also that's free, and people can subscribe to that. I put a lot of nutritional items in the newsletter, a little short, pieces but sometimes some tips and um so i'm i'm available i work with all different shapes and sizes and backgrounds just sort of to take it back to training really quickly dave um and, and this will this is sort of my last question to to wrap it up uh i think you come across pretty strongly as being a proponent of smart training and and you know not forgetting things like your top end and that sort of thing but but was there ever one like really crazy training session you did that you look back on and just think why did I do that? Yeah, I'll add two things to it. I think a lot of a lot of triathletes uh, omit mobility, stretching, and strength training. It's got to be done year round. And it, when I look at a lot of the top athletes today, I always question: Are you doing this program? I I did have a um, conversation with Lucy Charles, who won the seventy point three worlds. I'm sure everyone's aware of 
how she had annihilated the women's field with, I think, her best race to date. And she said, oh, Dave, I read something about your you know, strength training. You, and she said, I've been doing it. And it's really paid off. Well, she had this amazing race. Unfortunately, she has, a, I think, a stress fracture now. So I think a lot of the athletes and I and I was really hard uh, in making sure that uh, Christy and Craig were doing this. So I, I think that that is kind of the uh, crux of some of the weaknesses that athletes have is that, is that they fit it in when they kind of can and they don't do it when they kind of can <laughs> and it's neglected during the race season. And that's a mistake. Uh, your question, though, Jack. Um, yeah, when I was 40, I thought, oh, it's 40. That seems like a real dinosaur. I got to do something that's ridiculous. So I I did a big workout that day. I um, I got up and I ran um, about, th- I was just because it was around this reservoir, it was about 39K. And then I got on my bike and rode, um, uh, I'm just trying to think, it's about 165 kilometers. And then I went over to the pool and I swam 4,200s. And and then I went out that night and we went to this place called the Rio. (laughs) It's known for its margaritas. And we had quite a gathering. And I think my metabolism was just like (laughs) two deranged bulls. And I I seemingly drank a lot of margaritas. It didn't bother me at all. It just went right through my system. But I know a lot of people drank too much that night. (laughs) But that was quite a big workout for me. Awesome. Hey, thanks for, thanks for the chat today, Dave. Um, bloody insightful. I think, I think you are without question, one of the, the best minds in triathlon. And so it's, um, it's awesome or just in, endurance sport as a, as a whole. So it's really awesome to have you on, on the show. And, and I think people are going to get so much value from that and, and to hear it from, you know, the horse's mouth of, of a six time <laughs> world champion, the three time runner up, you know, world champion coach. It's, um, it's just a real honor. So yeah, can't thank you enough for coming on. Well, thank you, Jack. Enjoyed your insightful questions. And, uh, you know, if your viewers want to get a hold of me, I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, there's an astronaut named Dave Scott and there's a musician and there's me. So <laughs> you can find you can find me and send me a note. I have a, a link on my website as well. There's a Ask the Man, which uh, kind of a funny name, but people send me questions via that route. Anyway, thank you, Jack. My pleasure. Thanks, Dave. All right. We'll see you. Cheers. Cheers.